Hi, this is Lisa, and you are listening to I Love That Movie. This podcast is for movie lovers. It's not an unbiased opinion. It's not a straightforward review. It's just a couple people talking about a movie that they love. The format is each week I have a guest, and that guest and I discuss a movie that they love, something they're obsessed with, something they connect with. We'll talk about the plot, the director, and the actors, but we'll also talk about the personal connection my guest has with that movie. So if that sounds like something you want to listen to, keep listening. This is Lisa, and if you want to catch up with me on Twitter, you can find me at ILTM Podcast. We also have an Instagram called I Love That Movie Podcast. And if you want to support the show, we do have a Patreon, patreon.com slash I Love That Movie. We are so happy for anything that you guys contribute uh, towards this content. And of course, you don't have to. But if you do, uh, we really appreciate it. I do want to thank my top patrons, which are Chris Balga, Jeff Widman, Michael Cross, and Joseph George. Again, thank you guys so much for all you do. Uh, If you want some last minute uh, I Love That Movie merch, we do have a Teespring um, where you can find t-shirts and mugs and things like that. We also have a Discord group if you're not a big fan of Facebook. And then we have a Facebook group as well. It's just called I Love That Movie. It's just kind of a safe space for movie lovers to discuss their favorite films judgment-free. And I really only have one rule in there, and it's keep it positive. And lastly, if you like what you hear today, please subscribe and rate the show. It helps new listeners find us. And speaking of new, I have a new guest on here today. I have Danny Hercules. Say hi, Danny. Hi, Danny. <laughs> hey, well, welcome to the show. We've talked a few months ago, actually, about you being a guest on here, and I'm so glad you reached out to me. I was like, okay, we need to bump him up to the top. So that's a little that's a little trick out there for some of y'all. I, you know, have a lot of moving parts and a lot of things going on. If you ever need to nudge me, I will not be offended. Go for it. Um, but Danny, in case people haven't heard you before, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit? Okay, um, I uh, I'm me, and uh, <laughs> I can tell you about uh, my interest in where my interest in movies started. Uh, when I was in high school, I worked in a movie theater. So, nice, I did too. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I was working on the inside. We had separate. You know, we had the people who sold tickets. They stayed in the box office, and the concessions in those days were a completely different company. We weren't even allowed to go oh. there. I was the usher. We still actually had people who stood in the house and walked up and down the aisles and told people to take their seats down. You don't have Love that it. anymore. But but <laughs> that was my job, and that enabled me to just watch the same movie over and over again. And I got to really understand you know, watch movies and see how they were put together. And especially from a writing standpoint, that's my main interest is in writing. So, you know, you, you learn by seeing the movie more than once, you learn how they set something up for a, a surprise later on, you know? Yeah. It's kind of like you got a free education. Exactly. This was even before there were commentaries on, on home videos. This was really before there was home video. So. That's awesome. I love that. Well, Danny, um, thank you so much for coming on. And 
my guest always picks the movie. So <laughs> what movie did you pick for us to talk about today? Xanadu. Yes. <laughs> now, and then this came out in 1980, which is a good yes. year. A lot of good movies came out in 1980, right? Yes. Including <laughs> this one. <laughs> um, so, Danny, how did how did you first see this movie? Uh, this was when I was working there. This is when I was in high school. So, um, oh, that's I, awesome! Yeah, I got to see it at the movie theater, and you know, I, I was looking at the little featurette that's on the DVD, and they talked about how this was originally scheduled to go out to wide to like nine hundred theaters, and at the last minute they they shut it to like two hundred theaters. So that's partly why it didn't do so well. Uh, yeah. Where I was, since we did, we're playing it. I can tell you, I mean, we didn't have the the most packed houses, but it, it didn't do poorly. We we definitely that's, had crowds coming and enjoying it. That's so interesting. So you're you're pretty lucky you got to be in one of the theaters that had it showing. Yeah. What what part of the states was that in? Chicago. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. That kind of makes sense. It seems like the major yeah. cities would be the ones to get it. Yeah. Um this is my first time watching this movie. <laughs> what do you think? <laughs> I liked it. You know what's funny is I've had several friends that are very passionate about this film. Okay. Um, like I had a coworker that used to talk about it a lot and used to say things like, one day you need to come over and watch it. And I was like, okay. And I really didn't have a great awareness of what it was about. And there's just so many movies out there. It's like the one movie I didn't get to that I keep, it keeps kind of coming up, but I hadn't seen it. So I just kind of walked in pretty blind to what it's going to be about. And so it was, you know, I got to see it with fresh eyes. Great. Yeah. And with that, I, I'm going to read the synopsis really quick. As usual, guys, this is not a spoiler free show. We are going to talk about the movie. So you might want to pause and go watch and come back. But if not, and if you've already seen it, here is the synopsis. So in this film, the mysterious Kira, played by Olivia Newton-John, appears to assist and inspire a young artist, Sony Malone, played by Michael Beck. When she helps him meet up with the rich Danny McGuire, played by Gene Kelly, the two join up together to create an artistic and business success, a unique club called Xanadu. All right. That <laughs> seems to be the movie in a nutshell. Pretty much. Yeah. I had a couple of quick facts, too. And um, if you want to jump in with your own facts as well or just thoughts on them, I'll go ahead and rattle a couple off. Uh, after Kira tells Sonny she's one of the Greek muses, she starts to say, my real name is Terp, but Sonny shushes her and she never reveals her real name. She's there to help him open a dance club and she's obviously a dancer. So her name is most likely Terpsichore. After the Greek muse of dance, although in the stage adaption of the film, she was Cleo, the muse of history. Right. So did not know that. So I thought that was mm -hmm. kind of interesting. Um, quick question, I guess, on the background of this. So they wrote this as a movie first, right? Correct. There's yeah. a, there's some misinformation on the internet. A lot of people think that this is a remake of a 1947 movie called Down to Earth, and uh. I, I couldn't find any connection at all <laughs> in, in any verifiable reference. Um, I, I actually found the movie just a few years ago on, on one of the streaming services and watched it to see for myself, and it's completely different. Rita Hayworth <laughs> Rita Hayworth does play uh, the muse Terpsichore, the same same muse, but it's a completely different story. She's 
discovered on Earth there's a playwright, a successful playwright who's launching a play about her, and he's got oh. it all wrong, and so she's got he's got the facts wrong, and it makes her look bad. So she's pissed off, and she goes down to Earth to sabotage the play, or to get him to change it to make it more favorable to her. So it's a right, so very different. different. Yeah. yeah, not a muse at all. <laughs> More right. like she's just intervening. <laughs> yeah, I kind of because when you watch the movie, I mean, it, it definitely lends itself to a musical. And it makes sense that later there'd be a stage adaption to it. Um, mm. And so it, it's like when you first watch it, you don't know which one came first or I didn't until yeah. I kind of watched some of the behind the scenes where they talked about how they came up with the concept. Uh, the other one of the other facts that I had was the choreography in uh, whenever you're far away from me is nearly identical to the title number in for me and my gal in 1942, oh. which starred Gene Kelly and Julie and Judy Garland. I, I didn't know that, but that's not really surprising. Right. Yeah, because I think that that uh, particular number was added in yeah. and Gene Kelly uh, really took the lead on sort of mentoring Kenny Ortega uh, in sort of coming up with the the choreography. So it makes sense that he would base it on something he'd already yeah already yeah. previously done. Uh, the last one I had was that the soundtrack was an, an enormous success. Oh, absolutely. the song, yeah, the song "Magic" went to number one on the U.S. pop singles charts, and in the U.K., the soundtrack album peaked at number two, and the single "Xanadu" was number one for two weeks in July 1980. So I think that speaks a lot to what you were talking about, where there definitely was a market for this film. Maybe it was technically a flop, but it, it's almost like they didn't know what they had a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it was ahead of its time. <laughs> it was really interesting watching uh, the behind the scenes because I feel like I walked into this world not really knowing a lot about it or understanding it. And so it was really cool to get some of the history and the background of, you know, why costumes were the way they were, why oh, yeah. certain decisions were made. And so it definitely gave me a different appreciation for it. But I could totally imagine execs at the time being like me, like not being hip to what was happening <laughs> <laughs> and just being like, what's going on? Because I did feel a little bit like that, which like I'm good with that. I embrace that. It it, it felt I got a lot of vibes like, you know, from movies like Breakin and like other uh -huh. films that sort of were around dance and, and, and full of color and just very indicative of the time that they were made. And so I was like, I could see why, you know, they saw like the, the people that wrote it saw like a market for this for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, did you have any other any quick facts that you wanted to like jump in with before we get started? Oh, let me see. I can probably think of some. Uh, another <laughs> piece of misinformation I found out uh, on the internet was a lot of people say that this is the last movie that was rated GP. I know where that actually oh. comes from. Um, it wasn't rated GP. It was rated PG. So if you know the rating system, they, they first started, I think, in 68 with G, M, and R. And they very quickly okay. changed the M to GP. But the GP also didn't last very long. I think it was just like a year or so. And they changed it to PG. So when I saw it in the theater and when it came out on VHS, at the very end of the movie, uh, after the end credits are finished, they put up a GP card. And I think oh. that was just the filmmakers playing a joke the same way they started the movie with the old 1930s style Universal logo. They just wanted to 
keep capturing this feeling of an old fashioned 40s or 50s movie mu- musical MGM, you know, from ah. when it wasn't, you know, when the, there's no swearing, there's no violence. They, they just wanted it to be this nice family friendly feel. So they said, well, let's take this rating card that doesn't exist anymore and throw it up there as a joke. And, and <laughs> that's what I'm guessing. I'm, I would also guess that the MPAA probably found out about it sometime around, you know, before DVDs came out and they said, no, you can't do that. So, <laughs> so the DVD uh, says PG. Oh, gotcha. That's, that's interesting. I didn't think about that watching it, but you're right. The movie is not violent. It's fun. Yeah. And there is a lot of very intentional callbacks, you know, specifically with Gene Kelly and mm-hmm. what he brings to, to the film. And I like that. It's sort of like an updated, you know, version, but still respectful of where they came from kind of thing. Exactly. I mean, that's kind of the theme of the whole project. And, and you get that right from that opening logo. You know, I, I love that is because it's, it's that, old style universal that wasn't in use anymore. And then uh, they have a plane going around it. And at first it's a, it's a plane with one propeller. And then it, each time it circles the globe, it comes back and it's a little more modern. The, the second time it's got two propellers, then it's a jet engine and then it's a Concorde and then it's a spaceship. And, and they're saying, and, and the music is, is changing styles along with it. You got, it starts mm. out with big band and swing, and then it turns into kind of a disco version of Xanadu and they're they're just saying this is about embracing the past and the present and the future and bringing them all together stylistically, creatively, um, and and that's really what the club that they're trying to open, what that's going to do, because we have this one old guy, Danny McGuire, who's from the forties and he's teaming up with a guy who works in the, in, in the record business in the eighties as a painter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, they're, they're combining rock and roll with, with big band and all that stuff. So, you know, we have that one number in the middle with the tubes where the stages actually converge, you know, we see yeah. the two different kinds of music combining visually right in front of our eyes. So that's absolutely what they were going for the whole time. And you see that in the costumes as well. That that's what they were talking about. Oh yeah. There's definitely like a blend of different time periods and, and like you said, everything from the past to the present to the future, for sure. Mm. Um, so I was thinking we could either run through this movie chronologically, if you want, or we can pick a few of your favorite scenes. Um, either way is fine with me. Okay. Let's do some of your favorite scenes then. Well, my all-time favorite scene is definitely the uh, whenever you're away from me. Oh, Yeah the big band number and I, you know, I didn't know for a long time cause they didn't have these behind the scenes things until much later. So I didn't know that that was just something that they tacked in at the end. Um, and it just always was this magical moment for me cause I didn't grow up in the forties, uh, but I felt like, well, this is my version of, of getting to see that old style Gene Kelly thing, but with Olivia Newton, John, you know, and I was a big fan of Olivia and electric light orchestra. Right. Olivia so, Newton-John was, I didn't realize like how close this was to Greece. It was literally right. like a couple years later. And mm-hmm. so she's like, you know, the most important musical person of yeah. her time. Uh, and Gene Kelly, of course, is a legend. Um, yeah. And he, I have to say, like, he looked good in this movie. Like he aged yeah. well. And he, he was did, just yeah. very spry. <laughs> like he was um, very light on his feet and 
I think it is cool to see, you know, a lot of times in the film, they're doing more modern dances. And mm-hmm. then you see Gene Kelly get this whole dance number where he gets to do what he does best. Mm-hmm. And it just looks so good. And I think the movie really needed that scene. So hearing that it yeah. was added later was interesting. And then I was personally interested in the fact that he mentored uh, Kenny Ortega, yeah. who, of course, went on to do a bunch of movies that we watched today, did those you know, high school musical films, mm-hmm. which is a little, I guess, after my time was a little too old to watch it, but I did anyway. <laughs> and, and like Newsies. a lot of his, <laughs> yeah, Newsies. I loved Newsies. I have to say, I have go. a big soft spot for that movie. <laughs> um, I wanted to be a Newsie. Um, uh-huh. But, <laughs> but yeah, he's done a lot of great work. And I mean, you know, it, it's it, even if this movie was not a huge success at the time, um, I think people saw a lot of potential in, in him s- simply because Gene Kelly did and they became mm-hmm. pretty close and yeah. up until his death. And I just thought that was so neat. Knowing that backstory, that 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 is the fun part about, mm-hmm. you know, researching these films and and taking the time to, to watch some of those special features because you learn really cool stuff like that. Yeah, and I'll be honest, I, I don't think at the time that I saw this that I, I really had started exploring older movies. I don't think I had seen Singing in the Rain or any old Gene Kelly movies. And this inspired me to start looking back at those earlier musicals. Oh, that's awesome. Singing in the Rain is like my oh, go-to yeah. when I'm having like a bad day. <laughs> like if I'm having a really bad day, I could literally just pop it in and be like, the world's better. I'm good now. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And I like that in Suddenly, uh, the, the duet, that there's a moment where they bring down the umbrellas and it feels like an homage to Singing in the Rain. Yes. Yes. Totally agree. <laughs> um, what What's another uh, scene that you like? Um, well, another a controversial scene is the animated sequence. <laughs> it's controversial i want to hear about this why so well, it just seems so odd and awkward i don't think <laughs> i can't think of any other movie that did anything quite like that yeah just, i mean the songs the elo songs i don't think jeff lynn was really on board with the project i think i don't know if he even <laughs> read the script i think he just delivered a few songs that he had and, and he was contracted that it had to be that he had to use the word xanadu in one of them <laughs> <laughs> and, and so they had a lot of trouble figuring out what to do with his songs and and they uh uh but this this i you know i didn't know any of that the first time i'm watching it i'm just enjoying it sure like, that's really odd and it's interesting and it's unusual and it's kind of cool um, you know, sometimes musical numbers in a, in a movie really kind of aren't so as visually, especially if there's not a dance number with it. If it's just like somebody standing there singing, like Olivia does with uh, "Suspended in Time" or "Hopelessly Devoted to You," mm-hmm. uh, but, but to 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 say, well, let's just create this whole animated world for just two and a half minutes and turn them into fish and birds. And stuff like that. <laughs> it was just, it was so cool in a weird way. Yeah, I feel like it gets parodied too. Like I'm thinking of uh, in uh, Anchorman when they like animate it briefly. Yeah, it feels yeah. very much like they're calling back to this. Um, I recognize the animation style right away. Don Bluth, you know, it's yeah. yeah, Don Bluth, which I mean, like you know, that was like a huge. I loved Don Bluth animation when I was a kid. I was obsessed mm-hmm. with like The Secret of Nim and right. you know, All Dogs Go to Heaven. I remember being so bummed out when you know that they're kind of reign ended uh but he was Mm -hmm. basically working on 
uh, the secret of Nim when they reached out to him. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he kind of switched gears and was like, uh, okay, and just kind of came up with something. I, I saw a behind the scenes thing where he mm-hmm. talked about when he saw it in theaters, he was like covering his eyes like, oh, no, <laughs> everyone's going to hate this. <laughs> and then he said that the audience was really receptive to it. And they loved it. It made him feel a lot better. He was like, okay. I remember that seeing it in the theater with the audience and, and they they did giggle at first, but it was, it was in a, in a pleasant way. It's like, they were pleasantly surprised. It's like, Oh, this is silly, but fun and cute. And by the end of it, they were going, Oh, I think the fish kiss at the end or something like that. And, and everybody was going, Oh, <laughs> sort of, I guess not a specific scene, but right away when I started watching it, I was like, Oh, when I saw Sunny. Uh, mm-hmm. Michael Beck. I was like, oh, Warriors, like recognized him yes, right away. Exactly. <laughs> I feel like in the 80s, there was a lot of hiring guys that kind of looked like him, mm-hmm. where it's like, they're so handsome and statuesque looking. And then they're like, I'm a painter or I'm like, you know, a writer. And you're like, really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're like, I don't know. I don't know. You look like almost like too good looking for that role. <laughs> right, <laughs> you know? right, right. By the way, that... That was a real thing, people painting giant album covers for Tower Records in L.A. I don't know if they did that anywhere else in the country, but that was a real thing because they didn't have equipment in those days to print enlargements. So. I was really, you know, like when that part of the movie happened, I was, I thought that was super interesting. I was like, I never even (laughs) thought about that. Like, how did they enlarge stuff? And um it honestly seems like a pretty sweet gig, but yeah. <laughs> like he's so upset and it's so soul crushing to him. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, la di da, I would love to do something like that. But <laughs> I guess maybe hindsight's 2020 since that yeah. completely went away and was replaced by a machine. Um, right. But well, yeah, power records went away too. Th- this is true. <laughs> Little <laughs> did they know. Um, yeah, I I liked uh, I like all the dance numbers. Mm-hmm. And I really liked when they were in Xanadu and uh, one thing that stood out to me was the guys in the zoot suits. Mm -hmm. And I I looked at my husband and I was like, what is happening? What's going on? I was like, I feel a little confused. And then when I was watching the behind the scenes, they were like, people dressed like that at like roller skate clubs. Like that wasn't like something we came up with. We were tapping into (laughs) what was happening. Um, And I was like, Oh, so that kind of, I, I looked back on that with like different eyes because of that. That's kind of what I was alluding to earlier. I was like the square execs that had no idea. <laughs> um, oh, another oh, interesting thing. And I, I, I don't, I didn't notice this until I was probably the hundredth time I saw it. The, the very first shot after the, the Universal logo was gone, it's uh, Gene Kelly on the, on the rocks on the beach playing the clarinet. Yeah. This this is obviously this is all in Los Angeles, so that's the Pacific Ocean. The sun is rising. That's a trick shot because the sun doesn't rise over the Pacific Ocean on the West Coast. Oh, interesting. No, I definitely it, did not notice that. And when I I first realized, I thought, "Oh my God, that is so cool!" Because subconsciously they're setting you up for this is a world, a, a fantasy world. Mm-hmm. We're not in this movie. Doesn't take place in the real world. You know? Yeah, that's true, and it's like the only harsh real world aspect of it is like his boss and his yeah. like ideals yeah. until he meets Gene Kelly. Yep. Yeah. Oh, I like that. Uh, <laughs> did you have any other scenes that. 
Um, What's the I next also, scene you're thinking? Well, I also liked uh, the that that other the next first scene. So we had the logo, <laughs> and, and then the the sun rising. But then uh, is the scene where Michael Beck tears up the the painting that he's working on, and it flies through. And some people thought that was you know some of the haters uh, think that, <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. But it immediately reminded me of Mary Poppins. Yeah. When the when the kid when the father tears up the kid's uh, uh, want ad for the nanny and he puts it in the chimney and the pieces uh, you know in the fireplace and the pieces rise up the chimney and they reach this magical woman who lives in the clouds just like a muse would and she comes down to earth to solve their problem and it's I don't know if that's what they were thinking when they wrote it but it reminded me of that I can totally see that I think sometimes people have trouble with when a film sets up its own rules right? and it's like, they have trouble just going along with it. But I think you're right. I think the movie does a good job of saying like, this is where you are. This is what's going to mm-hmm. happen. And if you go with that and you're not like, yeah. well, how did this happen? Well, how did that happen in a way that I don't think we ask other movies where the conventions are more familiar, mm-hmm. you know? So it's like, you kind of have to go with whatever world building is happening. And I think sometimes people struggle with that, but if you go with it, I think it does make sense. I mean, it makes sense in the context of it being a fantasy. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's see. What What's another scene that you wanted to discuss? Um, well, I can tell you another little fun fact. Oh, um, go for it. In uh, uh, just before they go into whenever you're away from me, we see uh, he's sitting there alone and we see kind of in the background it fades in. Um, uh, uh, they're just finishing up uh, another song and we see like Olivia in, in the Glenn Miller band thing. And, and mm-hmm. young Danny gets up playing the, the clarinet in the background. The guy mm-hmm. that playing young Danny was Matt Latanzi who ended up marrying Olivia Newton-John in real life. Oh, wow. They, they met on that movie. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. They're not still <laughs> married, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I saw recently, uh, Olivia Newton-John and John Travolta did like sort of a, anniversary of Greece, right? Mm, okay. And she was wearing her old costume and stuff like oh, that. Oh, yeah, I saw really that. Cool. Yeah. 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 So one thing I liked a lot about all the different numbers was like all the different costumes. And I I have to admit, I I really loved your explanation just now explaining how it, it was trying to channel different eras and say, I guess that no matter what's different, you know, the energy and like mm-hmm. the I guess the vibe of, you know, this musical idea is the same. Mm-hmm. Um, she had like that outfit where um, I forget what the name of the song is, but it's like she has like that sort of cheetah print and then she goes into like a cowboy. Oh, this is cowgirl. The end. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah that, uh, that song was called Fool Country and it wasn't on the soundtrack. Oh, really? Okay. They, yeah. they had room for 10 songs, though. Oh, gotcha. Okay. <laughs> but I but just, I liked on, that. I liked all the different changes. side of one of the singles. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, to this day, I, I mean, I, I'm actually kind of upset that they've never, all this time, they've never released like an extended edition of the soundtrack with, with uh, you know, some of the, there were three B-sides that were on singles that aren't on the album. And there's also the, the you know, the musical score, the cues. I, I mm. wish they would put that out, you know, on a, on a CD. Yeah, that's surprising that they haven't, especially with like this movie, I feel like has a pretty big cult following still. Sure. Like the like after you mentioned it, it was really weird timing. I all of a sudden saw 
on like my Facebook. I mean, it's always listening, right? But mm-hmm. I saw a little ad pop up for Alamo here locally. Um, is going to show Xanadu. Oh, and right. I was like, oh, interesting. Like, it's weird. Like, they right when I'm watching it. So, um, yeah. They, yeah, they, just, did a, they did a screening here in L.A. a few years ago, and a friend of mine went to it and didn't tell me because he didn't – he thought I, I, I would, like, laugh at him for going. <laughs> he didn't I have know to that say, I loved the movie. Yeah, I have to say, like, it's interesting on social media when I mentioned that, you know, I'm watching it for research. It's weird seeing all the different reactions and, like, people that I <laughs> thought would not be interested, like, defending it, and then people that I thought would like it not liking it. Like, right. <laughs> that is just kind of interesting. I don't think you can tell, like, who yeah. necessarily is. I, I, I feel like maybe the if the message of the film speaks to you, you know, mm-hmm. Um, about following your passion and, and just yeah. like a sort of romanticized version of, you know, uh, of, of all that, of like leaving something behind and starting something new and taking a big risk. If you're kind of more of a realist, it probably doesn't appeal to you as much. <laughs> yeah. for, but I feel for, like there's yeah. like, for me as a creative, as a writer, that, that, that message totally resonates with me about, you know, follow your dream and, 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 your dream will eventually come true. Yeah. And I think, you know, because the main muse is Olivia Newton-John, I think that mm-hmm. helps because she's just yeah. very like endearing and infectious and she seems so kind and real. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she just does such a good job with that role. And I think she was pretty interested in it, right? Like they didn't think that they were going to get a big name and then all of a sudden right. she wanted to do it. So it's right. like, uh oh, this is putting us like in a different league now <laughs> of expectations because they thought it was just going to be like a smaller film. It's like, now we got to go get Gene Kelly. I mean, who came up with that? <laughs> right. They're like, we're going to go straight to the top immediately. <laughs> But I think like, you know, it's interesting to watch it now because I don't think, you know, for me as a kid, I definitely went to like the roller rink a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think as we get further away from, I was born in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, as we get further away from that, like, I don't know if kids are roller skating anymore. Like, do they have any awareness <laughs> at all of like what this is about? Like, I have to tell you just because of my age, I was like, people roller skated at clubs like i was surprised <laughs> like it was like the thought of putting on a roller skates and going somewhere that, where they like serve alcohol and other adults are there like it's hard for me to imagine <laughs> yeah when i was a kid we went roller skating on saturdays just the roller rink you know like you're talking about but uh, i guess there was a, a, a very brief period of time at the discos where that became a trend um and yeah. i think xanadu just missed that trend you know, they, they, were, oh. they were already disco itself had faded out, but this is sure. really a disco movie. I, I, I yeah, don't not I, really I disco mm-hmm. and it, it gets that reputation. You know, I think that it started out, there was a movie the year before called roller boogie. And I think, Oh, okay. I think they were trying to emulate that, but that was before it turned into an Olivia Newton John vehicle. I see. So. I see. Well, I have to say after watching it, I was like, hiding my phone and Nick's like what what are you doing and I was like looking up roller skates <laughs> so it definitely influenced me at least in that way I was like how much do roller skates cost <laughs> yeah. I mean I'm sure people still skate in Venice all the time you know there's and skateboards have, be, have not gone out of fashion oh so. for sure yeah I feel like you know when I got a little older like maybe high school years it was like roller blades right but I exactly. feel like it's almost like 
I don't know if that's a thing at all anymore. And I feel like if anything, people are going like more retro. So I feel like the roller skates might be more where people are leaning towards now if if they were to pick wheels on their shoes yeah. <laughs> i guess oh yeah but they they make those shoes with the built-in wheels now that the, kids the heelys yeah. yeah for yeah, kids yeah. they also i remember as a kid i had those that you tied to your shoes remember those right yeah and all they did is like practically break your ankle because your oh. shoes have zero support for that <laughs> they're not skates yeah, that's the really old kind of that's probably like the first kind of roller skate there was a, there was a song in the 60s called brand new key i got a brand new pair of roller skates you got a brand new key and i think it was about that kind of roller skate because you needed a I, i'm not sure what the, i guess the key was to adjust it yeah, shoe. I don't know. I remember having some, but of course, like like I said, it was in the early 80s, but it was like these orange things and then they had mm-hmm. little wheels and I tied it and it was like before my parents bought me actual roller skates <laughs> or whatever they ended up buying me, they bought me those first and it was like, I don't think, I don't remember them being very successful. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I got a lot of use out of them. <laughs> but yeah so you already said i think your favorite song is the one with gene kelly correct yeah well my favorite scene in the movie for sure oh, I, think, sure. I think i was so into um electrified orchestra as well that went you know from the soundtrack my favorite song was all over the world I, ah. it's not my favorite number in the movie though the mm. way they staged it it's a little weird for me it doesn't really go anywhere <laughs> <laughs> That happens. Sometimes but, the visuals don't match the, the music. Yeah. yeah. But it's, it's a good song. Oh, and when I was watching the behind the scenes, too, they mentioned the tubes. Can you tell me yeah, more about so that? The, I was, like, not familiar at all. The tubes uh, were kind of, they weren't that well known at the time. They okay. uh, were this kind of underground, really cool rock band. I thought they would have been classified as new wave, but I, I actually looked it up the other day and, and they weren't, mm. uh, at least not according to Wikipedia. It just says that they're, they're rock. <laughs> yeah. Um, Cause they're jumpsuits, like the orange jumpsuits that they wear in the movie, yeah. uh, in the behind the scenes, they mentioned they toured in them like for like a couple right. years after that. Right. So yeah, a- after this movie, uh, they hooked up with David Foster and they, they got their first mainstream hits. Uh, one of them was called she's a beauty and the other one was Talk to You Later. And I saw them when I went to college. They were touring and I saw them uh, perform in concert. And they have a very elaborate stage show with with <laughs> wow actors playing characters during the songs and costumes and stuff. And it was just 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 really wild. Uh, he, he did say on the um, on the behind the scenes that he doesn't do the song from Xanadu. But, <laughs> but uh, it feels like that's what kind of catapulted him. But. I, I understand. Yeah. I guess it's like, yeah, I mean, uh, they, they weren't, yeah, they weren't very big and uh, they were, they were cool for the underground people who knew about them, but this movie was their first taste of mainstream stardom. And then David Foster took them to the next level. Okay. Yeah. I, I wasn't super familiar with them. Like the name kind of sounded familiar, but yeah. it didn't really occur to me watching it that, they were like an established band or anything. So when I saw the behind the scenes, I was like, I'm going to ask my guest about that. Cool. Cool. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And Cliff Richard, who does the duet, the suddenly he was, Mm -hmm. he was really big in the UK. In fact, before Olivia was famous, she was on his show for three years. Ah. I think. 
And uh, he, I think in 1980, he had just broken in the U.S. with his first uh, U.S. number one hit called We Don't Talk Anymore. So mm. just before this movie came out. So that's that's why they grabbed him. I It feels like that song probably was meant to be a duet sung by both characters. Yeah. But they got an actor who can't sing. So I mean, I, <laughs> I think they were talking to Andy Gibb uh, at one time to play the part. Maybe uh, they probably tried to get Travolta too, for all I know. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I didn't even think about that, I guess, because I've only seen it once, but he doesn't sing. Yeah. <laughs> it did not occur to me, but that is well, true. Well, when I, I went to see it at the theater where I worked, I went to see it with a friend from school, a guy named Barry Rockland, if he's, in case he's listening, hi. <laughs> and, and we were arguing about whether or not, because the Blues Brothers had just come out the month before, and we were arguing about whether or not that was a musical, uh, whether it qualified, because most of the songs are like concerts. They're, they're in the concert scene. They're just, mm-hmm. they're not, they're not where the story stops and, and the characters break into song. And after Xanadu and he said, well, that was definitely a musical. And and he said that because it felt like a musical. But if you really go back and analyze it, there's not that many songs where they're really singing on camera. You know, it's. Yeah, I guess like the sets and the costumes make you feel like it's a musical. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, the fact that the the male lead doesn't sing. Exactly. Just throw that into question. (laughs) But they talk about music and art the whole time so it kind of yeah i don't know so where did you fall on blues brothers just side note what would you you think it's a musical or not i do think it qualifies as a musical and uh i guess primarily because of the aretha franklin number and and also Mm -hmm. the ray charles number because those are kind of integrated into the scenes that's one of my favorite films and i like the way that they approached that entire genre and the way that it's treated in the film. But yeah, I agree with you. I, I think of it as a musical for sure. Yeah. And John Landis says that on that DVD, he says, well, that was my goal was to create, to use every different kind of musical concept, you know, for all different kinds of movie musicals. So that's why he had the one number that Aretha does where that's a traditional book number, you know, Mm -hmm. and then, and then he had the others that were concert numbers. And then he had some that were just being played in the background and stuff. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier that this kind of like opened the door for you to see more musicals. Uh, sure. Just curious, like what what are some of your other favorite musicals? Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's for the older ones, I really, you know, Singing in the Rain is, is the best. You can't top mm-hmm. that. I did just watch Gigi the other a couple of weeks ago. Have you ever seen that one? I have not. No, there's so many out there that I have not seen. I'm like, people need to pick these. (laughs) So I can watch them. I tend to like the more dramatic ones. West Side Story and Fiddler on the Mm -hmm. Roof are my favorites, I think. Um, I also kind of like Carousel because we did that when I was in high school. Oh, Uh, awesome. (laughs) Yeah. And, oh, well, we did 1776. I was in uh, a version of that. Oh, okay. Okay. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) do you find that other people that enjoy musicals like you do like is is this a gateway for them too or probably not (laughs) (laughs) it's more of like a niche like i mean it does have kind of like cult status i guess yeah, well, what I, I also just recently rewatched uh, The Greatest Showman, which I loved. And, I and love I that movie, Listening too. to the commentary, and he was talking again about how, um, you know, it's it's period, and yet the music is anachronistically contemporary. Mm-hmm. Uh, same with Moulin Rouge, I think. And, yeah. and in that sense, it kind of reminded me of, of 
Xanadu, what they were trying to do thematically with the whole con- story as well, uh, being you know a blend of old and new together, and that's uh, that's the way it sounded like he was describing um, the Greatest Showman, except they were going the other way around, where the where the the story was older and, and it was set in an older time, but the music was more contemporary. Yeah, and I think when you don't follow like the formula of what you know people have come to know as a musical, I, I agree they all have that same shared concept. It really shakes things up, mm-hmm. and like people, you know, like when The Greatest Showman came out, it had like a I don't know like a fifty percent on Rotten Tomatoes, yeah. and yet it was doing extremely well. So it's like yeah. just because something sort of doesn't follow the quote unquote rules, you know, rules are made to be broken. And I, I liked it because I felt like there's a lot of people out there that maybe feel that musicals are extremely dated. And so this mm-hmm. kind of helps them, you know, dip their toe into the musical world in the same way that this movie did that for you. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, yeah exactly. I think also, uh, you know, back to that theme of blending the old and new, I think music has always built upon itself to, for the styles to change. Because if we, you know, if we didn't have R&B, we wouldn't have rock and roll. And if we didn't mm-hmm. have rock and roll, then we wouldn't have had like disco and that. If we didn't have disco, we wouldn't have, um, you know, uh, uh, electronica and hip hop. You know, all of it just keeps building on uh, from, from what came before it. We don't just forget it and create something brand new. Very true. It kind of reminds me too a little bit of uh, the movie Streets of Fire. Yeah. How like a lot of people watch that and they're like, this is awful. And then you'll talk to people that are like, let me tell you what's happening. And like when you explain the plot to them, because they don't like come out and say what it's about, but it's like about rock and roll and it's about, you know, being uh, selling out or not selling out and staying a true artist. And like when you describe it in that terms, it makes you see that whole movie differently. Mm -hmm. It does make me feel like you know, with Xanadu, the way it was received, at least critically, it's like they weren't, they just weren't picking up on what the message was, yeah. Yeah. you know? Well, and it's interesting that, that Olivia has that one moment toward the end where she's singing a country song because she started out as country. Oh, I didn't she, know that. Yeah, then she went to very mellow pop and mm-hmm. then and then she got into like a little bit uh, edgier pop with physical and, and, and things like that. Something that was more risque for her at the time. <laughs> <laughs> Kind of like the way Sandy, sh- you know, changes her image from wholesome Sandy to to uh, leather clad Sandy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that was her. And Electric Light Orchestra, that, that's that's their concept as well. They're they're a blending of rock and roll, modern stuff with cla- you know, with a string section. That's why they're electric light orchestra. They have, you know, orchestras are associated with older music and they have a string section in all of their songs. And I think that's probably why they were approached for this. Not, not because they, they were, they weren't a disco band. They, Mm. they did have one disco song, shine little love that came out the year before uh, Xanadu. And it was their biggest hit at the time, but I don't think they were looking for disco at all. Oh, it's interesting when you watch, you know, the behind the scenes and, just see how many uh, creative and, you know, big, important people in their field they got or people that evolve later on after this to, you know, it, it just lends itself to like the fact that um, everybody there was sort of an expert at what they do and they're getting like the best of the best together in this like one movie, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like I like blending stuff. I mean, 
just last night, uh, me and my father went to the Dallas Symphony Orchestra here, had a night called Fiesta Navidad, and they had a mariachi band that is actually like a Grammy winning mariachi band. And in my head, I was like, I I wanted to do this because I like mariachi music. I had mariachi at my wedding, but I was also like, how is that going to go with the, you know, orchestra? Like I was trying to picture it or how is this going to be different from all the other times I've seen mariachi? Cause you know, it's almost like you think of them as like, Oh, they, they come to like birthday parties and restaurants and weddings and, you know, almost like a DJ. Um, Mm -hmm. and what was funny was when I was there last night watching it, it's like, wow, it's almost like you forget that they're, I mean, they're literal true musicians in every sense of the word because they have all these instruments, no, but they have like no sheet music. So the orchestra behind them is supporting their music, but you know, they have like sheet music and these guys don't, and they're just doing everything from memory and using all these instruments and every single one of them can sing. And it really put a different vibe on that type of music and you know kind of I think I already had an appreciation for it but it sort of I don't know it made me look at it differently so I think sometimes it's cool when you take two different genres and put them together like that because you Mm -hmm. you get something new but you also you know you're kind of like in this film where they're not saying that like 40s and 50s music is like lame they're just saying like here's new stuff and here's how they kind of go together I thought mm-hmm. that was cool. Yeah. And there are some similarities as well as there are differences that, that complement each other. You know? Yeah. In some ways, and again, I don't know if they were thinking this, but for me, that concept is also a metaphor for how people with differences can come together and, and, and celebrate their differences as well as you know share their similarities. For sure. Especially since I think Gene Kelly is really a big represent representative of like his time and it's like very wholesome and, you know, maybe conservative by 80s standards. And then the 80s dancers, like the way that they're acting and represented the diversity, it's such a, a contrast, you know, to like singing in the rain. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so it's like cool to see them together. It's not like Gene Ke- Kelly's character is like, oh, this is yeah, you know, this is too much for me. This is too, I don't know, sexy, too diverse, or whatever. Like he just, it's all kind of the same to him. You know, they they yeah. sort of support each other. And I heard oh, too absolutely. on the behind the scenes, they mentioned that they didn't tell the different dancers what was going to happen, like right. how it was all going to look together. So like you're kind of getting like honest reactions, and yet I think you don't notice that when you watch it. So that I think that's kind of interesting. They're like, oh, our styles mm-hmm. really do kind of complement each other. They didn't even have to set that up. Right. Yeah, that was kind of an interesting fact. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Suspended in Time is another one that I, I, I didn't used to like it because like I, I said before, sometimes when in a musical when someone's just standing there singing, it gets a little <laughs> boring. I've come to appreciate it a lot more for some reason. I, I, I like that song better than Magic. Magic was ah. the biggest hit from the album. It was a number one hit, and it's only played in the background in that one scene where she's skating, which is weird. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't notice that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I mean, maybe in Suspended a Time is like the hopelessly devoted to you of that movie. And, right. And I, I, I wonder, you know... I saw another older uh, behind the scenes where where the there was they filmed it set a different way at first where she was singing oh. Michael Beck in the Xanadu Club. Oh, okay. And at some point they changed it and they put it in that void, which was 
for me, it's it's cool in a weird way because I would just find myself staring at the little uh, the yellow outline around her. You know that <laughs> are they getting because it's all rotoscoped. I'm like, did they did they is her hair going through that line there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a defect that you do not see anymore. <laughs> right, right. Oh yeah, that all had to be done by hand. It was uh, it was pretty cool. Yeah, I, yeah, it's neat. It's like something that maybe at the time they might have been like, oh, this is like cheesy. Like, I don't like this. But like, when you look at it now, it's very retro. And, uh-huh. you know, it's cool to see because it's just something you don't see anymore. And yeah, the fact that it's all done by hand is really interesting, too. Yeah, yeah. What did you think of the ending um, when, when he meets Olivia as the waitress? I felt like that's how stories like that end. Like I kind of saw it coming a little Mm, bit, especially when, you know, Gene Kelly's like, oh, I want you to, why don't you ask for another drink or, you know, whatever he said. But, and then she comes over. I was like, ah, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Because if she, if she has to give up, you know, being a a goddess, I guess, then I guess it's only fair that she start over. Interesting. Cause I mean, I, I always used to think that she, that was Kira. But I, I have a different theory now. Ooh, I, I want to hear it. I think when they said uh, they were they were confused about it, what's in it, what's forever or a little while, and they were going to let her go, that they ended up just letting her go back to to the club to open it and sing the Xanadu songs and Full Country and all that. And then when she disappears from the stage in that beam of light, that's it. She's she's gone back. And this waitress is just a girl who looks like her and the, the, uh, that she was sent to make Xanadu happen. And because Xanadu happened, he was able to meet this, this other, this real girl who would be his true love, who just looks like her. I like that. That's interesting. No, I kind of thought, I I really did think like, oh, they like her dad wiped her memory or something. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) No, but I like that too. Okay. (laughs) I mean, they don't, I guess they don't come out and say exactly what happened so you can kind of right. interpret it different ways yeah. I, I that's my favorite interpretation so <laughs> Cause, because i think that's a better interpretation yes because otherwise then the rest of the world is is uh, missing one muse there's only nine of them that's true <laughs> other people will need <laughs> her right right huh I hadn't thought of that. Well, yeah, and and I think it's better too because then he's gonna fall. Not that he wasn't in love with the muse, I guess, but that's kind of part of what muses do is right. like inspire you and give you all these feelings. And so it's like, is that genuine? Then is that real love? So mm-hmm. you know, this may be an opportunity for him to explore a real relationship instead. Exactly. Yeah, that's probably a more mature <laughs> interpretation. Yeah, it probably wasn't my interpretation until more recently, so. <laughs> um, but I do like it. Okay. Um, um, let's, oh, go ahead. the director. We haven't talked about the director. Oh, yeah. Robert Greenwald. So, this, mm-hmm. Robert Greenwald, this was his first theatrical film. Um, before this, he did a lot of TV movies. And okay. I think that might also be why maybe this doesn't look as big as a, as a grand theatrical movie could look. Um, right. And TV movies, they're used to working really fast too. Although mm-hmm. this, uh, you know, apparently the budget did kind of keep ballooning and, and the schedules, the uh, extended and so forth. But um, he's as a TV movie director, I think his, his best known uh, movie was a few years later called, um, 
what was it called? The Burning Bed. Okay. And. Oh yeah, nineteen eighty four. Yeah, with Farrah mm. Fawcett. Uh, it was it was a landmark. Oh, there it is. Yeah, I have. Um, it was uh, at the time that that came out. People weren't talking about domestic violence. It was still always just like, oh, that's a personal problem. You know that, that mm-hmm. you know they're married and stuff. And people didn't understand battered spouse syndrome at all. And this movie was about right. that. And it was really kind of the the first thing that really got people to start talking about that. It took another ten years in the O.J. Simpson thing to really get people to pay attention to it. But, mm, yeah, but, I'm reading the uh, synopsis of it. I haven't seen it, but. Yeah. Wow, yeah, it's like not pulling any punches. Yeah, and it's based on a true story. And uh, it was the first time anybody uh, was, who had done, you know, right now, uh, I think like 90% of the women who are in prison are in prison for, uh, you know, fighting back against an attacker of some sort, usually their their husband or, or, or a boyfriend. Um, yeah. That, that it was a very, very common thing. And uh, this woman... You know, she was, she felt that she had no other way out of this marriage and she burned the, the, you know, her husband alive in his bed while he slept. And, uh, she got off by, uh, on a self-defense, uh, uh, argument. And it was the oh, first. Oh, wow. That's super unlikely even today. Absolutely. And it was the first time it had ever happened. So. Yeah. I listened to kind of a lot of true crime podcasts and there's one that I really like called Real Crime Profile and they. They talk about a lot of uh, cases like that that you're mm-hmm. mentioning where it's, you know, actually somebody, basically it is self-defense. And it, it is hard for people even now, I think, to wrap their mind around what a victim goes through. Why would someone stay? You know, all those questions that we're mm-hmm. always wrestling yeah. with. Um, that is really interesting that all the way back in 84, they were tackling it. So mm-hmm. that's that's really cool. And, that was also, and to put it on TV, like that seems really well, bold. Also to have Farrah Fawcett do that because she was only known for, you know, charlie's angels at the time she wasn't thought of as a serious actress and this changed her career yeah and also i think seeing somebody that like friendly and accessible Mm -hmm. and you know sure like you said in like happier upbeat things and then to see her in that position is probably uh, oh yeah very jarring and 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 would make you think of it in a different way because that's more like real life it's you know people that Mm -hmm. are in that situation are not drama actors they're your neighbor or, you know, exactly. a family member. So exactly. that, that's really cool. I didn't know that. I, I don't think I was familiar with his other uh, work. So that's really cool. I'll have to well, check that out. The other thing that he's known for is uh, um, he's now strictly does documentaries. Uh, uh, he's a political activist. And oh, awesome. So uh, he did a dir- the documentary Outfoxed, which talked about how Fox News was not really fair and balanced. And, and, Really, mm-hmm. before I saw that documentary, it never even occurred. This is a long time ago, and I just <laughs> now it's very clear. Yeah, we we weren't as divided, but you, know, so you, you would just say, "Oh, there's a news channel, there's another news channel," and it, you didn't right, think much about right, it. Right? Yeah. And this documentary really exposed, you know, how Rupert Murdoch was was sending out memos to everybody saying, "You must talk about this this way," and you must, you know, all the stuff that we now know that they do, but but in those days, it was it was kind of a secret, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. What a different world we live in now, but yeah. that's, that's really cool. Like I'm looking through his, uh, his IMDB page oh, and yeah, yeah th- this is, you know, good stuff because I, I really, that's probably my other passion. Like 
that's that's another podcast I could start. Like, right. I love that documentary <laughs> because I like to watch a lot of them. So that's oh, yeah. really cool. I, I like that he transitioned to that. It, it does yeah. seem interesting to go from Xanadu to I know. serious activism. <laughs> but hey, you know, yep. <laughs> he followed his passion. I love it. Um, he might say that Xanadu forced him to go in a different direction, but uh, yeah, I guess that's a <laughs> maybe. I was saying the more romanticized version of it, <laughs> but regardless, yeah. we're thankful for both. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and Jeff Lynn has said negative things about it. Uh, uh, Michael Beck has said uh, Warriors opened doors for him, and Xanadu closed them. You know. <laughs> I was going to say, I feel like I don't see Michael Beck a lot. And then I was looking at his IMDb page and I'm like, huh, I guess Jack. <laughs> you know, like, it feels like if he's getting roles, it's as an homage to the to Warriors a little yeah. bit. Yeah. 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 But uh, I mean, I, I didn't even know that Xanadu was so hated until just recently because, you know, I had gone from seeing it in the theater where I worked. So I saw a bunch of times and then I had a VHS of it, probably a mm-hmm. bootleg because this was before everything was available and I got the DVD. Right. There's never been a long period of time where I hadn't like watched the movie and where I'd go back to it and say, gee, I forgot how crazy this was. I've always just <laughs> con- continued to watch it to, you know, to be uplifted by the inspiration and stuff by the inspiring message. And um, just a few years ago, I met a girl who was named Kira. And it was spelled just like the Olivia Newton-John character, K-I-R-A. So I said, uh, oh, like like Olivia in, in Xanadu? And she kind of rolled her eyes because people who make that connection in the past would always just make fun of her because they hate the movie. Aww. And she was expecting me to go along. And, I, and she told me that. And I said, are you kidding? I love that movie. I just watched it the other week. It's so inspiring. Da, 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 da. And, just, <laughs> and she she turned me on to this whole new world of hate for that movie. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say then you got Twitter. <laughs> um, oh, no, 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 no. I, uh, <laughs> I just... I just looked it up and saw, you know, the Wikipedia page to the whole story about how the guys that started the Razzies started it because of this movie. Uh, Ugh, well, well, I'm not a fan of the Razzies in yeah, any exactly. in any capacity. So, but yeah, that's unfortunate. I well, I didn't really know that either, to be honest. They say um, it was a double feature of this and Can't Stop the Music, and I wonder if maybe they just fell asleep by the time Xanadu started and they're just lumping them together. <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> Yeah, I don't think I knew about the hate either. Like I said, I've had a couple friends that really were passionate about the film and loved watching mm-hmm. it. So I never thought to ask, you know, is it yeah. good? It's just like, well, they like it. And then, you know, when I kind of started posting around about it, I had to be like, hey, guys, you know, like, this is some people's favorite movie. Let's let's be cool here. So but I mean, it's sort of I got both answers of like, mm-hmm. I, I will never see it again. And then other people saying I love it. And I watch it all the time. So just one of those films, I guess, that different people have different uh, reactions to. We're going to experience that tomorrow, probably when Star Wars comes out. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'll be I dealing with that all over again. <laughs> I liked Last Jedi better than um, the, the one that came before it. Uh, Force Awakens. Yeah, I, I did too. And apparently but Twitter didn't. Like, yeah. It's like, it's weird how, you know, like I walked out of that movie like, wow, that was good. And then yeah. I got online and I was like, oh, wow. So it's like, I'm not always great at telling. Well, for me, I, I love like. it. For me, Star Wars was always Luke's story and they kind of, you know, went away from him and made it kind of the Han Solo thing. And, and to finally bring back, you know, Luke front and center and make this his movie again. That's what I was thrilled about. 
Yeah. Well, yeah. And, and some people didn't like how that was done exactly. Mm. Or, you know, people have all these different ideas. But yeah, it is interesting how you can view a movie when you're sort of in a vacuum versus out of one. <laughs> like I was saying the other day that, you know, and I've said it a couple times on the show, I miss when I would like go to the theater and just see like a title and a poster and be like, yeah. I guess I'll see that, you know, and I'll walk in and watch it. And I feel like now, like months and months and months and months before you ever, sometimes years before you ever even set foot in the theater, you've already seen like 10 teaser yeah. trailers yeah. and three trailers and, you know, extra scenes and stuff. And, you know, all the Rotten Tomato score comes mm -hmm. out, you know, two days before it comes out or whatever. And it's like the embargo lifts and you're yeah. bombarded with it. Yeah. And it's like you can't form your own opinion opinion at all when that uh, happens <laughs> well i know i'm looking for cats looking forward to cats which also opens tomorrow and i've been avoiding the trailer because i know twitter hated the trailer <laughs> and you know what's weird is i saw that trailer and i thought i mean it, it looks odd i guess but cats is odd so i was just yeah, it has to be you have to do something <laughs> cinematic with it and i'm gonna see it anyway so i've been avoiding uh reviews and stuff like that but i did just happen to see a review a review just before we started recording this and it was a bad one so i don't care I'm yeah still gonna <laughs> i know it just it really hurts your i don't know it can hurt your enjoyment because you're yeah. walking in like and, and, and i said to somebody on twitter today that was like i'm hearing it's bad and even people that really like it don't <laughs> like it and and i just said you know I'm probably going to like it no matter what Exactly <laughs> is the honest truth. Like it's star Wars and I'm probably going to enjoy it. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you know, there's a possibility, I guess that I'll have like the reaction that I had a long time ago when I saw the prequels, but right. to be honest, I'm a different person now. Like I'm a different type of fan. And I feel like if anything, as I get older, I'm getting more forgiving, yeah. which is kind of surprising. Cause I feel like a lot of people, like my biggest fear is being jaded in every movie I see being like, seen that, heard Absolutely. that, you know, because I, that can happen so easily. You know, I went to see the new Terminator movie what is it, dark fate. And, and I waited till it came to the, the, the second run theater because everybody hated it. And I'm like, Hey, this isn't bad. This is a pretty, for a yeah. Terminator movie. This is pretty good. It's better than uh, the last three, I think. Right. And, and, you know, a lot of people said that it just yeah. didn't do the numbers right. that, you know, but yeah, it's like the bar is just too high. Yeah. Like that. And that's kind of what my reaction, even with the Star Wars thing is like, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's just space samurai. Like, <laughs> I mean, you know, it's not that important. It's not Shakespeare. Like, right. it's OK if it's not at that level. Like, I'll be fine. <laughs> exactly. And it's like, yeah. So I, I don't know. Oh, well, I mean, I'll enjoy it no matter what. And yeah. you know what? We'll probably end up doing an episode on it. We'll see. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> and I like when people pick, you know, divisive quote unquote movies. I feel sure. weird even calling it divisive, like calling this movie divisive. It's like a fun, <laughs> upbeat movie with lots of musical numbers. Really? That's controversial. Um, <laughs> it really shouldn't be. <laughs> if people like it, just let, let them have it, you know? Yeah. Um, were there any other like scenes or musical numbers you wanted to... I think we pretty much covered everything. Yeah. Okay. Um, so do you own the soundtrack currently? Um, yeah. On, on uh, MP3s. Yeah. 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 It's funny. I was at that uh, performance last night and they were like, we're selling CDs in the lobby and we almost <laughs> like went and bought them. And then there was a line and I was like, 
I'll probably just listen to it on Spotify. Yeah. I mean, I <laughs> just had at that point. I had the vinyl from you know when it first came out, but oh, I don't, that's cool. I don't listen to vinyl anymore. I got rid of all my vinyl, and I never got the CD of that because I thought, well, they've got to eventually put out an extended version. I want that version. Yeah, yeah, um, they should like for an anniversary or something. Yeah. But I was able to track down, you know, the the three B-sides that I mentioned, they're all on YouTube, and I was able to convert those to MP3s. So now I have a complete soundtrack. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. You're like, I will make this happen. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah, one of them is uh, You Made Me Love You, which is an old song from like 1912, I think. And oh. uh, it's an old jazz standard. And this is the one that Olivia is singing just before they go into the the Gene Kelly number. Right? Oh, okay, okay. And he's playing, you know, he, that's the record that he bought at, at Tower Records, and, and he brings it home, and he puts it on, and to, plays it for Michael Beck, and that's playing in the background of that whole scene. Well, that was the B-side yeah. of one of her singles, and I just oh. love that arrangement of it, and I knew a guy who was in charge of putting together, uh, like, a, a d- deluxe, definitive, greatest hits of Olivia's for Rhino Records. And I said, you got to put that on there. And he tried. He he contacted Universal. They own it. Uh, and they wouldn't let him have it. Oh, no. that's too bad. I I also read somewhere that this was Gene Kelly's last role. Is last, that Last true? theatrical film. Yeah, I think he did some mm. TV stuff. But it, also the last time he sang and danced on, on camera. Man, and he seems so energetic, yeah. but I know yeah. he got sick later in right. the 80s and then had a, right. a stroke in the 90s. But yeah. yeah, I just thought that was kind of a bummer for him, maybe a little bit, depending on how he felt about the movie, since it didn't do yeah. well. Yeah, yeah. I, well, it didn't do so poorly. It grossed $22 million and oh, can't, that's good. can't Stop the Music only grossed two. Ah, okay. <laughs> You're still thinking about that one, huh? <laughs> because of the double feature. <laughs> yeah, I love uh, it. <laughs> it ended up uh, 28th for the year out of 115. Okay, so that's not okay. Bad. Yeah. yeah, it was. Ahead, well, that's good. It was ahead of American Gigolo and Fame. Fame, I love Fame. Mm. <laughs> uh, I don't think I've seen Fame. Oh, I need to see that next. Yeah, time. you gotta see that one. <laughs> and it was it was ahead of uh, Roman Polanski's Tess, which won three Oscars. Wow! So okay, well, it, not not too shabby. It didn't do so poorly. That's good. Okay, okay. Well, with that, I'm going to give you your last couple of questions. Then I know we've talked mm-hmm. about it this whole episode, but if you could put it in a sentence, what keeps you coming back to this film? Uh, I can tell you it's a little bit more than a sentence, but about 10 years That's ago, fine. I had an experience where I was kissed by a muse, uh, where somebody, <laughs> a, a girl came into my life briefly, just long enough to inspire what became my first novel. Uh, it's called North Pole High, A Rebel Without a Clause. It's a Christmas story. <laughs> Um, nice <laughs> and then she kind of disappeared the way kira did and, and i uh, i have no way of uh contacting her anymore and uh so i when i see this movie again it it, it uh i, I i'm kind of like relating to the gene kelly character because mm-hmm. i got that inspiration and i got that thing out that that she inspired but she left my life and now here I am on a rock, you know, uh, not, nothing's happening with me, you know, w- with me in that department. But uh, I don't think, you know, when, when he goes ahead and arranges for Michael Beck to meet this waitress at the end, 
you know, it's not a sad ending for him. He, he, you might think that he walks away with nothing because, you know, he's got the club, but he still never got Olivia back, right? Gene mm-hmm. Kelly. But I think he knows that that, that time has passed for him and mm-hmm. he can, he's fine living vicariously through watching Sonny also share this dream and get this other part of his dream working too. So for me, yeah. I, I watched that movie and I'm just like, well, it's nice that, that this works out for Sonny, even if it didn't work out for me. <laughs> <laughs> that That is a very personal answer. That's, that's interesting. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so if you were to, to give this as like an elevator pitch to someone else, like uh, how, how do you describe this movie? I guess it's a little tricky since it's a little different. <laughs> Uh, it's a remake of Down to Earth. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, we've established it is not. <sighs> wow. Well, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's what I've been saying. It's, it's a movie that celebrates, um, uh, bringing together, blending together older styles of, of music and dance with newer styles. And, mm-hmm. um, but it is, I guess if we're talking about, you know, pitching somebody watching the existing movie. You're not talking about pitching a, a, a new movie like it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well then, yeah, it's, it is in the eighties. So you got to warn people about that. But you know, <laughs> if you like Olivia Newton-John and if you like uh, electric light orchestra, and if you like singing in the rain, this is your movie. Yeah. I like that. The fact that they're all kind of different things yeah. too. Like, yeah. Yeah. I think, I, I don't know. I walked into it not knowing what to expect and mm-hmm. I still appreciated it. So I would just be like, it's a musical, it's colorful, it's yes, um, very positive, colorful. you know, like if those are the kind of things that you want out of a movie, if you're looking for a very serious, you know, explanation for everything, I would definitely watch a different movie. Yeah. But, you know, depending on your headspace, I think it's, you know, good and, and and people really resonate with it and like it for a reason and yeah. there's a lot of faces in there that later go on to do other things and i think that's pretty cool too I, and and you know what i just remembered one other scene is you, you're talking about if you're looking for explanations there is that one scene uh that where she almost says her name where she's trying to explain right. who she is that's really the only exposition we get the closest we get mm-hmm. to an explanation of what's going on but i thought i i just still find that scene so charming and funny the way it comes about to the way she just hands him the dictionary to with the page already open and it says in there do you believe me now sunny and, and the way she's talking to the tv that's I, that's one of the funniest moments in that movie for me yeah yeah well, thank you so much for picking this film and thank you for coming on. Thank you for having me. And is there anything that you want to like plug on your way out or anything like that? Um, is this going to drop before Christmas? Uh, yes, yes. Well, yes. check out my book, North Pole High, A Rebel Without a Clause. I didn't put it out under my name. It's under because uh, it's about uh, Santa's daughter and it's uh, she's dating a boy on the naughty list. And, <laughs> and it's sold first person. So uh, I put it out under her name because otherwise that would be admitting that the, or, or claiming that Santa wasn't real and he is real. Oh so. yeah, exactly. So, I love that. <laughs> so look for North Pole High by Candace Jane Kringle. Excellent. Well, Danny, thanks for coming on and you're going to have to think about, you know, uh, another movie in the future. When Absolutely. You come back. I look forward yeah. to it.